Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. If you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians uh, chapter 4. You know, isn't that challenging? Like, Paul could have just wrote that, that Jesus on the last night or at the last supper took the bread, but he points out in the night in which he was betrayed. Like, he makes sure that we realize, like, this wasn't Jesus saying this to people and then all of a sudden the next day being like, oh my gosh, if I would have known what they were going to do, I never would have done that. Like, he understands he's about to be betrayed. He said, the time has come. And he knows he's about to be betrayed, and yet even in that place of knowing he's about to be betrayed, he still takes the bread and offers it to them and takes the cup and offers it to them and says, like, nothing that you guys are about to do will change what I'm about to do. That's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, I'm here for you. I'm here out of love. I didn't come here for your great response. If we could settle that in our hearts, that love is worth it no matter the response, we would live a lot more like Jesus because then we wouldn't be measuring out the way that we love people based on the way that they respond to us. Jesus talked about that. He said, what good is it if you love those who love you in return? Don't even the Gentiles do that. What's he saying? Those that don't know God as Father, they they have no problem loving the people that love them in return. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who spitefully use you and curse you. Like He's saying, listen, settle it in your heart that you're going to love people, and then if they love you in return, awesome. And then if they don't, it's okay, because you weren't doing it for the response. Love is not for the response. That's manipulation. Just Here's the thing. Sometimes this is hard to hear for us. It's okay. Like Let it be hard. But don't let it be like it was to 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 a rich young ruler. He heard a hard truth. And he walked away sad. Why? Because he made a decision in that moment that what was being asked of him was not worth what he could receive. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the law. Tells him the law of Moses. He says, I've done all these things ever since my youth. Jesus looks up and says, well, there is one thing that's keeping you from it. And he puts his finger on the one thing that the man thinks is worth more than what's being offered. What if we settled in our hearts that there's nothing he could ask that's worth more than what he's already given? So then that we're not trying to make that choice in the moment when it's asked of us. And I, I, like it, love that, that is loving for a response isn't love. That's manipulation. It says, I'll love you so that you do this. And you can always tell whether it was love or not by the end result if the thing doesn't go the way they want it to. Because Jesus is on the cross getting beat, or going to the cross, and he's getting beat by the people that he's going to die for. If he's doing it for their response, he never gets to the cross. He decides at some point that these evil people aren't worth it, because everything I've done, and this is what you give me in return. Look at what I've done for them. Look what I'm about to do for them. You ever given yourself the right to say that? I have. After everything I've done, and all you're doing in that moment is proving the reason why you were doing it. And it wasn't really love, actually. It was for what you would get in return. All right, I went over about like I thought it would. Listen, I'm I'm telling you, Read this word and let it, like, search your heart. 
Like, don't just read it and be like, oh, I read Ephesians. No, let Ephesians read you. Let it search your heart. Like, lay yourself bare before him and be like, God, search my heart and show me. I don't want to just read this to get to the next chapter, to get to the next book, to get to the end, to say, I read through the Bible in a year. I want to know you. I want to become like you. I, I don't want to get to the end of my life and realize when I get there that I could have been so much more like Jesus in this lifetime. I want to, look, I, when I get there, I'm going to realize I, I didn't get to the full stature and, and, and measure of Jesus. I'm probably not going to have everything figured out. You probably aren't going to have everything figured out either. But it should not be for lack of desire to become or for ours actually investing our lives for it. Thanks, Crystal. So, like, when we read this stuff, like, the rich young ruler is a good example of what happens when the words of Jesus confront something that we're not willing to let go of. It says, and he walked away sad. And Jesus lets him go. Why? Because he's confident that his word won't return to him void without accomplishing that which he sent it forth. He's confident that Maybe not that day, but maybe one day, that rich young ruler will be sitting there, and he'll hear those words of Jesus echoing in his heart, echoing in his mind. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come in and find, you know, find eternal life. And all of a sudden, he starts looking around, and things that once looked so valuable to him, he starts to see in the light of eternity and eternal life, and in the light of Jesus' words. And all of a sudden, the things that seem so important don't look so important anymore. And one day... He'll make that decision, hopefully. Let, let the words of Jesus, don't walk away sad. Like, don't just read it and be like, oh, and then walk away. Like, stay there in that place, alone with him in that word, and ask him to come and change my heart so that I don't walk away sad, I walk away changed. Just think about it. Like, you... I read stuff in the Word that confronts me on a daily basis. Like daily, I read things and I'm like, like, and it's not in like a like a condemning way. Condemnation is simply pointing out what's wrong, without the grace and the hope and the promise of how it can be right. Condemnation leaves you feeling hopeless. Conviction is pointing out what's possible. And in the light of what's possible, what is looks so pale in comparison. That's what causes repentance. That's what causes us to grieve and to change the way that we think. Like Repentance isn't simply this, the act of being sad at seeing what isn't. It's also the, the, the idea that, yes, I grieve what isn't, but I also have this excitement inside of me towards what could be because I've seen what's possible. And so I don't just stay there crying about where I've missed it. I, I may cry. That, that's, a, that's a valid expression when I see that I've lived fallen short of the glory of God, that I've lived less than Jesus gave his life for me to live. Like, that's valid. I should feel something in that moment probably. But I shouldn't stay there because the point of repentance isn't to bring me to a place of being grieved by what, I, what isn't. It's also to put grace and a hope in my heart towards what's possible. And so I follow now the voice of Jesus, not the voice of the stranger. 
Condemnation will come and simply point out where you've missed it without offering any hope or any grace towards where it could be possibly where you wouldn't miss it. And so you stay there feeling like something's wrong with you. And, and then that's how you get stuck in that process sometimes, right? Because you, you, you just, you, you feel bad about what is, but you don't actually believe what could be. And so there's no faith. There's nothing for grace to actually come and land on and work through. And grace works by faith. And so, so when Jesus said to the rich young ruler, go and sell everything that you have, he said, my words are spirit in their life. In other words, when he spoke that, the Spirit of God took that, and if that man was willing, it would have brought life to his body, and he would have actually realized, oh my goodness, that's Jesus speaking, that's the Lord, and he's offering eternal life, and all I have to do is give away stuff. Jesus didn't say, well, there's one thing wrong with you, you're greedy. See, that's what condemnation does. Condemnation comes along and says, he says, well, tell me what I need to do. And he looks at him and says, well, I'll tell you what's wrong with you. You're greedy. You, you love your stuff way too much. That's not how he treats us. That's not how he deals with us. What does he say? He says, hey, here's what you need to do. Do this. And in the doing, the doing will deal with what's wrong. If we would actually do what he's called us to do, it would deal with what was wrong without us having to sit there and cry about what's wrong over and over again. The answer is in the doing what he's called us to. It's in the obedience, not in the pointing out and the fault finding. You realize he never said to the man, you're greedy? You realize to the woman caught in adultery, he didn't say, you adulteress. He said, go and sin no more. To the woman at the well, he says, Where's your husband? She says, I don't have a husband. She says, you've spoken truthfully. When you said you didn't have a husband, you've had four, and the man you're with now isn't your husband. He doesn't say, you lying adulteress. Why? Because he's about to give her an answer that will take care of that. He's about to give her something that will take care of everything that's wrong if she'll grab a hold of it and actually walk in the fruit of what he said. There's so many things in our lives that if we would just turn to him and actually follow the, the leading of the Spirit of God, it would take care of the issues over there rather than us having to stare at the issue and cry and feel bad about it and feel condemned about it. I'm not saying there's no place for that. I'm saying that the better way is to actually wake up every morning, eyes forward on Jesus, trusting that there's something in my life. He'll feel faithful to show me why, because he's more committed to me than I am to him. Be careful that we're not praying in a way that makes it seem like I want to be more like him than he wants me to be like him. I'm not trying to talk him into something. He gave his life for it. It was his idea. Did you guys go to Ephesians yet? All right. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. See, when, when, you, when we, we're about to read the word of God, and, and realize this, like he's writing this to the church at Ephesus. They don't have what you have. And that's a good and bad thing. Because sometimes we know so much that we can't hear simple truth. Sometimes we've been taught something for so long that it's a guard against truth. And it's actually a safeguard that keeps us from actually walking in truth because we've for so long heard a lie. So, so just being taught isn't always good if we're not being taught according to the truth of God's word. And we come up with cute little sayings sometimes that we learn as kids. 
I've been thinking about this one a lot because we've been, we've been talking to Jackson just a lot about purity and about the value of purity. And we, but, but the way we talk to him about it is not to sit there and say, you know, that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong. He knows it's wrong. We've told him it's wrong. We talk to him about the beauty of what God created sexuality for. Why? Because I want his eyes looking forward towards the promise rather than looking backwards at the wrong. Why? Because if all I talk to him about is the wrong, where's his focus? It's still on the wrong. He doesn't need me to help him focus on the wrong. The world is set up to try to draw him that direction. He needs someone to put something in front of him that's better and that's more worth it that he can look at and walk towards rather than something behind him that he's trying to get away from. Why did Lot's wife turn to salt? She looked back. What what did she look back at? Evil. I'm not supposed to stand around looking back at evil, even if you know it's evil. Standing and looking at the wrong thing and calling it the wrong thing for too long, it's still got your focus. It still has your attention. You're still nowhere closer to where you need to be. So let's not teach our kids that boys will be boys. Let's teach them that God created them in a beautiful way. Let's teach our young girls that God created them and, and, and created sexuality for them and that he placed it within the beautiful relationship of marriage and the beauty of that and the holiness and the sanctity of that and the purity that's in that so that they live their lives towards that rather than trying to get away from what's wrong. The perversion shouldn't be our attention. The truth should be. And a million lies are clarified by one truth. A million wrongs are destroyed by one truth. If our eye is single, then our whole body's flooded with light. It's quiet. Listen, like, listen. Here's the thing: that all the enemy wants to do is shut you up. He doesn't really care what tactic it takes. I was talking to someone before service, and I I was just talking to them and said, you know, I've been praying for you for the last. 10 days, and this is what I felt. I felt like the enemy, you've been listening to the wrong voice, and the enemy doesn't really care what it takes. If he can get you to believe him and listen to him, then the next thing you know, your eyes are off of the truth, and now you're focused on what he said. And even if you're, if you're trying to fix what he said, you're on a goose chase because the answer isn't to try to fix what he's telling you is wrong. The answer is to find the one who makes you right. And you listen to his voice, and he actually leads you and guides you into all truth. You can waste your time trying to fight the enemy and bind him and do all that kind of stuff. Or you could actually live towards the one who said, follow me, and I'll make you. (laughs) Like, the pressure's off. Relax and follow Jesus and trust that he'll make you. He takes this group of young fishermen primarily. They don't know. They haven't studied under the best rabbis. They weren't born on, and circumcised on the eighth day, maybe some. They, they weren't, you know, a Pharisee of Pharisees studying under Gamaliel. They didn't have the pedigree. They didn't have all that stuff. And he looks at these young men. He says, you follow me and I'll make you. I'll make you into fishers of men. We go, oh, fishers of men, they're going to preach the gospel, bring people into the kingdom. They didn't know that. They have no clue. Their, 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 their paradigm for fishers of men would be running around throwing nets at people. Just be careful that what you're offering people is freedom isn't really a net. I mean, not you guys. (laughs) Obviously, you come to Outreach Church. But there was a requirement there 
And it was this, follow me. That means you turn your back on what's behind you to follow me. It means you're not walking, looking backwards, pointing out what was wrong in your life and trying to fix what's behind you. You could spend your whole life trying to fix the old you, or you could let the old you die and the new you live, and all things pass away and everything become new. I'm telling you, listen, if you died, why are you going back and trying to resurrect a dead person and fix them? You don't go to the graveyard and put cast on people with broken bones. Why? They're dead. Why don't you live forward? That stuff doesn't label you any more than you let it. You get, be careful. Be careful. You get around people that start telling you that you got to go back in the past to fix things, to make the present okay. My past is covered by the blood of Jesus. I couldn't go back there if I wanted to because he said, so far as the east is from the west, so far shall my sin be removed from him. And if I'm in him, then how far away from me is my sin? It's about as far as the east is from the west. Because in him I live and move and breathe, and I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. That stuff's no longer a part of who I am. He's called me out of darkness and into light. I'm not going back with a flashlight trying to fix the darkness. I'm living forward in the light. No, that's not. This should be simple truth for Christians. And it's why being born again is the most amazing thing. It's why Jesus was on the night he's betrayed saying, listen, I'm going to be broken and torn so that you can be made whole. I'm going to shed my blood so that you can be washed and covered. And I'm going to, for, for once for all, cover the sacrifice that was necessary for sin for those who are sanctified. I'm going to do all of that. All you have to do is actually receive what I've done and live as though it's true, and it will be. But we always want to do something to fix things. Yeah, that's good news. That's the gospel. That's why it takes faith to believe it. It doesn't take faith to believe that I have to go back and fix my past. That, I can do that. Give me a therapist and a notebook and a bunch of Kleenex. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not mocking that stuff. I'm saying, listen, you can do that if you want to, but you don't have to. You can actually believe that you could be like Jesus, and for everything that was done to you, you could say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If they knew what they were doing, they wouldn't have done what they did. Why would I live as a product of people's ignorance when I could live as a product of his obedience? I get to choose. But I will choose. Jesus talks to the woman at the well. And she's had four husbands, now is with a man who's not her husband. How many of you know that's like a therapist's dream? <laughs> There's a book for that. You obviously are looking for the love of and insert the, the male figure that's the punching bag of the day. And because you never had that love, now you're looking for it in a man. So what we need to do is we need to go back and we need to figure out, no. What you need to realize is your whole life you've searched for the love of a father who has always loved you. And you may have looked in the wrong places for it and not found it, but that doesn't mean he doesn't love you and he wasn't there for you. And he still loves you. And he said, this is what Jesus is telling her. He's saying, listen, you've been drinking out of empty wells. You've been trying to drink out of empty wells. You've been lowering your bucket into the heart of a man who had nothing in there. When you drew it up, it was empty. That's what you've been doing. You've taken your bucket. He's, why? I know this is what he's saying. He said, because if you drink of me, what's he saying? You've been drinking of something that can't quench your thirst. 
You've been taking that little bucket of yours all around to all these different wells, and you invest yourself, and you give yourself, and, and you drop that bucket down into that well, and you hope that this time, when it comes up, there'll be something in there that when you drink of it will actually satisfy. And you bring that bucket up, and every time you pick it up and do that, there's disappointment because it's empty, and it's not capable of giving you what you're looking for. But if you would drink of me, not only would you not be thirsty again, you'd have something to give away because from you will flow rivers of living water. What's he saying? You let me get inside of you. Not only will you never be thirsty again, you'll, be, you'll carry the answer for those who are thirsty. Why? Because you actually have something to give because what you have, you give. If you have the love of the Father, you'll give people the love of the Father. You can tell what's in somebody by what they give you. You can tell. Jesus doesn't, doesn't take her down that road he doesn't try to take her back to find who she needs to forgive. Listen, if you have people that you need to forgive, you know you need to forgive them. You don't have to figure out why. You just have to know that they didn't know what they were doing or they wouldn't have done what they did. Jesus is on the cross. He doesn't say, well, that person did this wrong and that person did that wrong and that person did that wrong and I know why they're killing me because they believe this and they just didn't understand the scripture and they were manipulated, they were twisted, they were used by the enemy, they were jealous, they were greedy. He's not naming all the things that are wrong and trying to figure out everything that was wrong. He just looks out and there's one simple truth. They don't know what they're doing. They may have a million reasons why they would say if you ask them, but I know the real reason. They don't know. If they knew me, they wouldn't do what they're doing. All the people that have hurt you and done you wrong, if they knew him, they wouldn't have done what they're doing. The answer is that you forgive them because they don't know, and then you pray that they would come to know him so that the cycle doesn't continue. And you be okay even if they never are. You hope they are. You pray that they are. You lay your life down. You pray for them. You intercede for them. You love them. You don't become a product of what they've done to you. Never let what they did to you reproduce itself. It's all it wants to do. It wants to reproduce inside of you and make you like it. Why do you think he's trying to get them to eat the fruit by saying he knows the day you eat of it, you'll become like him? Why? Because why? how did he fall? He wanted to be like God. So what was in him, he gets to reproduce itself inside of them. That's why they eat the fruit. That's why he's so bent on them eating that fruit. It's not about the fruit. It's about the mindset he's trying to give them. The thing that caused him to fall, he now wants to reproduce itself inside of them. He knows that the day you eat of it, you'll be like him. Why? Because the reason he fell, he wanted to be like God. He wanted to elevate himself to the same level as the Father. It caused him to fall. Now he's looking for how can I reproduce myself in other people. Why? Because he has to give away what he has because what I have, I give. So make sure that what you're giving isn't something that someone else gave you. And make sure it's actually rivers of living water. The only way to get them is by drinking from him. You can't get them drinking from a person. Stop trying. What if they never realize it? You'll live your whole life thinking, that you need something from them in order to be okay. When Jesus came and gave his life so that you could be set free and live above and not beneath, be the head, not the tail. Be blessed as you come, blessed as you go, blessed in the field, blessed in the city. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, there's a place in me where it doesn't matter what people do or don't do. You're okay because I'm in you and I'm more than enough. But see, we have to read this scripture and actually let it challenge us to that place. Like literally ask myself, is he enough for me? 
I love my wife, but if my wife wasn't to love me the way that I want her to love me, am I okay? Am I okay? This doesn't mean is she okay? But she probably isn't if she's not loving me the way God created her to be loved. That should bring me even more to a place where I should want to see her become okay. Not so that she does me right, so that she lives right with him. So I'm not in it for me. If I'm praying for her because I need her to change so that I can be okay, we're both wrong. Who's going to help? One of us better be okay. This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said, you blind gods. You take blind people that follow you, and you all end up in a ditch. What's he saying? None of you know the answer. And so you lead people to something that's not even an answer, and you both end up in a ditch. Someone should have the answer when the answer walked on the earth and gave his life for them and then said, follow me, become like me, deny yourself, take your cross, and follow me. And all you have to do is just be obedient to follow him. That's it. He says, he didn't tell the disciples, go to this school and then go to that school and then come here and then do this and then nothing wrong with going to school if he's leading you to go to school. But if you're going to school, it should be because you're following him and he's leading you there because he said, if you follow me, I'll make you. That means the only way that school's going to make you is if you got there by following Jesus. Ephesians 4. We need to talk about this stuff. I'm serious, because for too long, the body of Christ doesn't look any different than people who would say there is no God. Look, when depression rates are the same inside and outside of the church, we have to ask ourselves, where's the gospel? Where's the Lord? Where's the difference? If all things passed away and behold, all things have been made new, what's new? Like, they tried to buy what the disciples had. When they saw the power and the authority the disciples walked in, they tried to buy it. People should want what we have. If you got the joy, 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 joy down in your heart, eventually it should probably show up on your face. <laughs> Literally. I just walk around looking angry all the time and hurt and depressed and the product of the night that you were betrayed rather than the night he was betrayed. And then you wonder why when you tell people you want to get born again, they look at you like, I'm good. <laughs> Wait, is that what you have? Yes, I'm good. See, it's impossible to be a carrier of the gospel. You know, you can be a carrier of a disease and not actually be infected by it. You, you can't just be a carrier of the gospel. If you actually know him, you'll change and you'll be infected and you'll be contagious. We should be the, like, we should be the most joyful, loving, compassionate, kind merciful, gentle people on the face of the earth. We should be the most solid and dependent. We're the ones who have a God that said to them, just let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more, it's from the evil one. We have that. We, we should be the most like, stable, dependable, steady people that you've ever met in your life. 
We should be the ones when everything's falling apart and the enemy's down in the valley screaming, whoever the enemy is. When Goliath roars in the valley and everyone's running in fear, we should be the ones when they look at us to say, have you not heard what's going on down there? Why? Because our faith shouldn't be a reflection of what the giant's saying. It should be a reflection of what God's revealed to us. This is what happened with David. It says every man's running away and David's walking towards it. And they say to him, why do they think that he hasn't heard? Because they can't imagine anybody has heard what's being said in the valley and doesn't have the same fear that they have. We should be the ones that can hear Goliath and be more impressed by the one we spent our time with than the one who's threatening down in the valley. See, this is, that's what brings David. I, I, I've heard it said before that, you know, well, David was confident and ran to the battle because God had prophesied over his life that he's going to be king, and he wasn't king yet, therefore he knew he wasn't going to die. And there may be something to that, but he didn't say that. He told you why. He didn't say, well, there's a prophecy over my life, and it hasn't come to pass yet, so I know that I'm going to go down there and kill the giant. That sounds cool. and I'm not saying that there wasn't some, some truth to that, but I'm saying the answer came out of his mouth. It was the time he had spent with the Lord and who he believed the Lord was and who he believed the Lord would be that gave him the confidence. L listen, I'm glad I put this. I don't know why I put it in my notes earlier today, and I did. I just, I, wait, I think I did. <laughs> I looked it up. <laughs> it's, it's in First uh, Samuel 17. Gosh, I should have put it. That was the Holy Spirit. 1 Samuel 17, I'll just look it up real quick. Because he, he gives a very direct and straightforward answer as to why. This is what he said. Saul said to David, you're not able to go fight against the Philistine, for you are but a youth, and while he's been a warrior from his youth. And David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep. What's he saying? You don't understand. What I, what's making me confident to go out there are things that I learned when I was alone. See, if all we have are stories of what other people have done or corporate experiences, corporate experiences are amazing, but you know what will give you the courage and the strength when the corporate is running in the opposite direction is what you have that you've got when you were alone with him when no one else was around. Your servant was tending his father's sheep he was all alone out in the field, and everybody would have known that. The shepherd went out. There was one shepherd. They went out. He was usually the youngest kid at this point. You know, they would put him out there. Hey, you go watch the sheep. You know that that's the case because when he runs up to the battle, his brothers look at him and say, why are you here, and what have you done with those few sheep? Like, they won't even give him credit for having a big flock. A big flock doesn't matter anyways. Jesus had a flock of 5,000 men. He whittled it down to 12 so fast. It's not the number of people that are following you. It's the one that you're following that matters. Because if the one you're following isn't Jesus, the number of people behind you isn't going to change his mind. He says, when a lion or bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. I, you, if you think the Bible's boring, read it. Your servant has killed, I'm serious, if you think it's boring, just read it. 
If you th- your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He didn't say, I have a prophecy, or I have a calling, or I've been anointed. All those things are true. What he said was, I've been alone with him, and I know who he is, and he's been that before, and he'll be it again. And that's what makes me want to go down there and fight the giant. It's being alone with him, and the relationship you have with him, and the history that you build with him that gives you the confidence. And we should be like, we should be those people that when everybody else is running away in fear, we're walking towards the thing. And the only reason they could think that David is doing this is, have you not seen and have you not heard? We don't live by what we see and we hear, so why would that matter? I've got a promise from him that's greater than anything I could see or hear down there anyways. And all I know is he's uncircumcised. It means he doesn't walk with God. It means he doesn't have the covenant I have. That means it's a bad day for him. Because everything that has tried to come against the flock of God, every time I've been a faithful, obedient shepherd with my father's sheep, when an enemy's came, he's given that enemy into my hand. And now here I stand, the man who's been called to shepherd this flock. And there's a lion and he's threatening the sheep. He'll give them into my hand again. You know how you get that confidence? Being with Jesus. In Acts, it talks about there should be a confidence that we walk in that people see because we've been with him. It talks about that in Acts. It says, it says and when they saw the confidence of Peter and John and knew that they were uneducated and unskilled men, they began to marvel and noted that they had been with Jesus. What are they, what's that saying? It's saying it's not because of the school they went to. It's not because of the pedigree that they had. The confidence that they had was because they had been with Jesus. I'm not against schooling and pedigree. Don't get me wrong. Go to the school. Get the pedigree. But let your confidence be you've been with him and you know him. Ephesians chapter 4. <laughs> I think I have already preached it. <laughs> we'll make it official. Now, this is the thing that arrested me, and I'm, just, I'm not going to read all the stuff before it because I want to get to this, and I'll close up. Well, I guess I have to. I want to give the context. So I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. What's he saying? You didn't learn Christ as a way that your greedy desire for impure things could be fulfilled. You didn't learn it through callousing and hardening your heart. In fact, if, if, if you ever find yourself in a place where your heart is starting to get hardened, get before him and ask him, to break your heart. Get before him. If, if, if you can't cry, if, if you don't have times where you're alone, I'm not talking about just in corporate worship. I'm saying if you don't have times alone with him where you are overcome and undone by the goodness of God to the point where it brings tears to your eyes, get alone with him and ask him to give you a, a hunger and to break your heart for him. I'm serious. He says that's not how you learned Christ if you were taught the truth. He says, if you indeed have heard him and been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, then in reference to your former manner of life. What is that that he calls going after impurity and greediness and calloused heart and ignorance and all that stuff? He says, that's your former manner of life. That's why when Paul's writing to the, to the church of Corinth, he says, and such were some of you, but you were saved. 
You were sanctified. You were justified. What's he saying? It's not who you are anymore. He really believes that all things have passed away, and behold, new has come. The old has gone. The new has come. He says, that's your former life. You lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You can't make yourself righteous and holy, but you, do, you can choose to put off the old and to put on the new. And you have to actually choose that. And you never have to take it off. You don't wake up every day and put on Christ. You make a decision once that keeps you for life. And if you mess up along the way, there's grace. If you mess up. Be careful you don't start putting whens where the Bible puts ifs. And you don't put ifs when the Bible puts whens. You know, he says, when you fast, if you sin. Just being honest, growing up in church, I'm pretty sure that I was convinced that if there was an if, it was before fasting, and if there was a when, it was before sinning. And maybe the reason that one was such a when is because we treated the one as an if rather than a when. You get to choose that. I, I mentioned this in first. I will close with this. I mentioned this in the first service, and I, I feel like I need to talk about it right now. Jesus said, when you fast. He didn't say, if you choose to fast, if you're super spiritual, you know, or if you're facing a big decision and you really need wisdom, then fast. Fasting isn't a way of forcing God's hand. It's not a way of manipulating God. Like, well, God, I'll just go on a hunger strike. Like, literally, that's what a lot of people think fasting is. Like, God's not speaking, so I'm going to fast. You can't hunger strike God. No, this is what fasting is. It's saying the spirit of God that's in me is what is in authority and control over my life, not my flesh. And so I'm going to choose to deny my flesh something it wants for a period of time to teach it that it serves me. I don't serve it. That's what fasting is. Do it sometime. I'm, Jesus did it for 40 days. I'm not saying go do it for 40. But try 40 hours to, to start. I mean, I have a friend, Matt, me and him talk about fasting. I'm like, man, it's like slowing to me. It, it goes by anything but fast. Like, I'm serious. I feel like it's, <laughs> I'm not fasting, I'm slowing. <laughs> He's like, I got this friend, dude. He weighs like 110 pounds. He can fast any time. It's like, I got meat on me. I need food more. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, is this. If we would do the things that he said when you do this, we might not do the things that he said if you do this. Not nearly as often. If one became the expectation of the Christian life, the other might be the exception to the Christian life and not the other way around. That's all it is. You're choosing. Like, your feelings make great servants, and they make horrible masters. And you're saying, I'm going to choose something that I know is good, and I'm going to honor that decision even when everything inside of me wants me to dishonor it. So try it. Try fasting. For some people in here listening to my voice, you need to hear this. This week, fast. Pick a number of times. It doesn't matter. Whatever. 
And do it with food. I've heard people say, well, you know, you could fast anything. I'm going to fast my phone. Listen, if, if your flesh would scream for your phone more than it would food, you've got a bigger issue than just fasting your phone. <laughs> well, I use it for work. I'm not talking about work stuff, and neither are you. No, but, but pick a time and then and, and set a time. Don't just have an open-ended one. Otherwise, Jesus will tell you to end it the first time you get hungry. I promise you, if you don't pick a period of time, the first time you get really hungry, you'll be like, I feel like the Lord's saying I can break my fast. <laughs> how do you think Jesus knew that it was the end of the time for him to fast? Because he knew before he went in there how long he was going to go without food. You know what's incredible about Jesus doing it? As God, he could have broke his fast anytime he wanted to by simply speaking a word. And pick a period of time and just say, I'm not going to give my flesh what it wants during this time. I'm going to deny myself. And I'm teaching myself that I live not according to my feelings, not according to my flesh, but according to the spirit that's in me. And this, the flesh and my feelings and my emotions will serve the Spirit of God inside of me. And they'll master it. And my flesh won't have mastery over me. You try that with food and watch how easy other things become to be master over. If you're having a problem being dominated by something, learn to dominate your flesh in the area of fasting and watch how easily that breeds into another area of your life. I promise you. It's not a legalistic thing. It's, listen, if Jesus needed to fast to be Jesus, if he's our goal, we probably need to fast to be like him. I never understood that. Like, why well, don't have to fast to be a Christian? Like, I don't have to fast to go to heaven. Well, no, maybe not, but, but the goal isn't just to one day go to heaven. It's to be like Jesus, and Jesus needed to fast to be Jesus. So I probably need to fast to be like him. And I was like, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. No, you, you probably don't, but Jesus had a habit of going to the, to, the, to the synagogue every Sabbath, as was his habit, ethos, custom, tradition. If he had to go to church every week to be Jesus, if he's the goal, probably need to get myself into a family of believers and regularly gather with them. I'm so far from where I... Maybe I'm not. Because you can choose to put off the old and to put on Christ, but you actually have to choose. It doesn't just happen because you hang out with other people that have. It doesn't just happen because you prayed a prayer one day. It happens by saying, like, I'm deciding that that's done. And, and this is the danger, I think, honestly, in what we were talking about earlier, where we make our past so much a dictator of our future, is it keeps us focused on that old life rather than forward towards new life in Christ. Even with good-sounding spiritual reason, turning my back on him and facing the past, it's probably not a good idea when he's called me. Paul said it. This one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I press forward towards the high mark of the calling. You can't go forward until you forget what's behind. Well, you don't know what they've done. I don't, but I know what he did. And I would not let the night that you were betrayed mean more to you than what happened on the night that he was betrayed. So, Father, I, th I thank you for that. God, I thank you for the obedience of the people who heard your call into to fasting. I'm telling you, there's some people here that needed to hear that. You need to fast this week. You need to. Well, when, when he tells me to fast, I will. Well, he already said in his book, when you fast. So 
He's already told you to. And there are times where he calls you to fast, but there's other times you choose it. You know what's better than just doing it when he calls you is actually wanting to do it when he hasn't called you to do it because it shows that your heart really is after him and that you're not just doing the bare minimum. Because you're saying, at a moment where I could choose that, I'm choosing this, rather than it being simply an obedience thing all the time. So Father, I thank you for that. I thank you for the grace on our lives, God. I thank you for, for you always coming and showing us what you've called us into, God. I thank you for stepping out of darkness and into light, God, and letting the darkness be and trusting your light. God, I thank you that that we walk forward towards you, Father God. I just pray right now for any of us who have let the story of the night that we were betrayed be the thing that's marked our lives, God, that you would break that in Jesus' name, that you would come, Father, and you would show us what you accomplished through the betrayal that you went through so that we could be free from the betrayal that we might go through. I thank you for healing hearts, God, for not one more day being wasted. God, that we wouldn't drop our buckets into the empty well of a human heart anymore not that now that we've found you, but that we would continually drink from the river that never runs dry. And that river, it'd start flowing through us. And out of, our, out of our bosom, out of our inside, out of what's inside of us would flow rivers of living water that others could drink from and taste and see that you're good. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.